What's up, everybody? My guest today is Brendan Moore, one of the co-founders of Wolftooth Components. And you don't have to be a cyclist to enjoy this, but Wolftooth is one of the best-known brands for aftermarket, drivetrain, and other little bits that kind of upgrade your bike and make the other parts work better. So we're going to talk a lot today about how to deal with customer submissions when your customers have ideas for products that they want you to make and some of the pitfalls that can come from listening to those ideas. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about how Brendan and his co-founders worked with each other while moonlighting for a company and with their families when they decided to go full-time with this and launch and how they shared responsibilities. And that to me is one of the biggest takeaways from this. It's such a great idea the way Brendan and his wife worked together to understand who was going to do what and that freed him up to go after this full time. It's awesome, enjoy, and I'll catch up with you afterwards. Welcome to The Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, The Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Brendan, thanks a ton for joining me on the show today. Yeah, sure thing, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the most important question, I'm just going to get it out right away, is wolf tooth components. Is wolf tooth one word or two? Wolf tooth is two words. Okay, I, I mistype it all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully the SEO can take care of that for you, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely two words. All right, good to know. So you are one of three owners in Wolf Tooth Components, and just for people who aren't familiar with the bicycle industry, that Wolf Tooth is a brand that makes uh, kind of aftermarket hop-up parts and kits for the bike. How would you? How do you guys describe yourselves? Uh, you know, our kind of credo is is to make uh, cycling components that make the cycling experience more enjoyable. And that's that's the short of it. Um, the more long of it is we make uh, everything from chain rings to uh, ways to store things on your bike. Cool. And I think just for anybody who's not at all interested in bikes listening to this, that what we're going to talk about today has a lot to do with any sort of company trying to launch a, a product, whether you're competing against giants or other small players, or just trying to figure out where to get ideas and how to bring in outside ideas. So stay tuned, even if you're not a cyclist. Um, so as one of three, can you tell me, like, how did you guys get started? How did you join the company? And, and what is the current ownership structure? Yeah, so the current ownership structure here is uh, Dan, Mike, and Brendan, the three of us. Um, I'm Brendan. Um, and... Uh, Basically, we started uh, the company back when we were working in the tech world, um, working at Seagate Technology. Uh, they make hard drives. And Mike and I worked in the uh, robotics automation area. Um, and Dan worked in the design engineering department. And uh, we all rode together at lunch and, you know, talked bikes, talked parts all the time. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those, those opportunist uh, things that came up. And we uh, kind of went after it. And then... I don't want to say the rest is history, but uh, kind of so is. I mean, we none just, of you we guys just, were in machining though, because you guys make all your own parts, right? We don't make them all, Tyler. We make right now probably forty percent in house. Um, the remainder is made at other local machine shops and a few around the U.S. 
Okay. Um, but, you know, we did have machining background. So like all the robots we were making and all the parts that Dan worked on were machined parts. Um, so we had an extensive background in, in machining and just basic, you know, lots of different areas of mechanical engineering. So um, tolerances, uh, coatings, all that stuff. All right. But, you know, being cyclists and then launching a company to make parts for bicycles are, are two different things. I think there's a lot of us that every now and then we'll look at our bike and be like, ah, you know, that could be a little better. Or I really wish this did this. But what made you guys want to make that jump and actually launch a company? Uh, you know, the original thing was we wanted a wide, narrow chain ring for our fat bike. And I think it's probably been stated a few times, but there just weren't any. And, uh, Mike made one and, you know, it's funny, I, I started using it and I'm like, man, this thing really works. And then, so we started floating the idea out on, uh, uh, some forums, Hey, anybody else interested? And there was interest. And, and so, uh, that's literally how it started was one product tried to make it. You know, and, and making it was, um, we used our connections that we had from our previous job. Um, I'd say that the bigger challenge was not coming up with an idea and making a few. The bigger challenge is scale. Uh, it's a huge, huge challenge. We're still facing it. Every small business does, even big businesses. But especially when you're growing like we are, it's uh, scale is a challenge. Systems, people, all that. All right. Well, let's talk people. Just you original three. Uh, we were talking beforehand and you guys kind of came on in phases. Uh, what was like, I, I guess it's a bit of a leap of faith. I imagine Seagate's a very big company. You guys probably had decent paying jobs there. It's got to be a little bit of a scary leap to jump into the bike industry. And we all know, you know, if you want to make a million dollars in the bike industry, you start with two. Yeah. So like why... Or what made you guys want to jump? And then how did you structure that ownership? Because, you know, the other side of it is a lot of friends will get into a company together and they'll just be like, eh, we're buddies, you know, 50-50. And then inevitably when money's involved, there will be arguments at some level. So structuring a group of friends into a business can be challenging. Like what were some of those things and how did you guys overcome them? Well, you know, Tyler, we first of all, we were friends. Uh, we still are friends, but we're also coworkers. Um, and and there's a difference between just going into business with your friends and going to business with people that you've worked with on stressful, intense projects and in big corporations. Um, I will say though, back to your uh, your first question, there was was it a leap of faith? And, and no doubt, you know, Mike and I both had uh, families, and yes, we had all good paying jobs in the tech world, big brother giving us a paycheck every two weeks, um, you know, bonuses, stock, all that stuff. And we had to walk away from that. Um, the, the, I guess, non-traditional path we took though, Tyler, was we, uh, for the first two years, we did transition out after two years, but for, for the first two years, we worked two jobs, essentially, well, more than two jobs, it felt like. Yeah, that was going to um, be my next question is where you guys and, been lighting this? Yeah, absolutely. We were. In fact, when I first met you, uh, it was in the early days of Bike Rumor, early-ish days. And I remember I took a call from you and I had to go out in the parking lot at Seagate because um, <laughs> um, I was in a meeting or something like that. That probably wasn't that interesting. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, we, we had to take a leap of faith. But, you know, the, the interesting thing about the approach we took is it allowed us to take some huge risks. Um, allowed us to sign on to some distribution contracts. We were shipping stuff for free at one point. 
because it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? You're, you're small, you're too small to get the volumes up to get the price down. But the only way to get the volume up to get the price down is to make bigger deals, sell to more people. And so during that period, I mean, we weren't making much. We weren't taking anything home. We didn't take anything home for, for basically until we left Seagate and had to, you know, keep our families fed and housed and all that. But um, so it was a it was a huge leap of faith leaving even after two years of kind of establishing the company, I'll say. Um, and when we left, it was like it's not like I left and went and sat and did a desk job. Like I was on the laser marker for three hours a day. I'd ship for three hours a day. Then I'd go do customer service and then I'd go do other business, you know, growth, product development, all that stuff. So uh, it was it was very grassroots and and we were very conservative with our approach um, in that we worked really, really hard, really long hours in an effort to be nimble and have financial flexibility. Cool. Well, I think if anybody's starting something they're not ready or willing or able to do that, you know, the long hours, especially if you're doing two jobs, <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, a. It was kind of uh, my wife's a teacher and um, I, we basically said, hey, you know, you're going to take a year off of teaching. Um, they allow you to do that in her district. And, and while we figure this out, you know, we're going to make a go at this. And uh, and so we did, you know, and so that was she it. was helping with the company. Like, why did she? No, she was off? she was because we had to run our household and she's she's a teacher. And it's just we couldn't I was working so much that we couldn't make the, the household run without you know, without her help pretty much yeah. full time running it. I guess it's I was funny. Cool. I, well, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I get that. I've been thinking about that a lot recently, actually. It's like, man, if my wife had a full time job too, combined with what I do at Bike Rumor and with this and some other side projects, like there is no way anything would get done at this house. Like you would have to hire a cleaner. Like which makes yep. me think like it's it's that not to get totally into the state of affairs in the country but like man the people who are single family or you know like single parent or both people have jobs man i just don't know how they run a household eat well get anything else done it's crazy yeah yeah and i mean at that at that time at least so my kids were in the four to seven year old range so they're still pretty young need a lot of tending now they're you know old and think i'm lame so they don't <laughs> really need me around but uh you know at that time it was like all hands on deck feeding, making sure things happen, getting ready for bed, all that. So it, that was a decision our my family had to make um, just to make a go of this. So back to your question, was there a huge leap of faith? Was there risk? Was it somewhat painful at times? Heck yeah. yeah. Heck yeah. All of the above. Man, I'm glad you mentioned that because like, I've never thought of it that way and nobody's ever brought that up. But it was probably really smart of you to think about that ahead of time because there's a lot of people that wouldn't I wouldn't have we would just jump into it and kind of like figure out later but that could probably lead to a lot of arguments and stress at home too if you're not it, you know everybody's not on the same page and understands why you're making the sacrifices or why things are running the way they are for a while so I'm, I'm gl really glad you mentioned that yeah and it also de-stresses the business too because again like I said we I mean we weren't pulling any money out of the business we had our other paychecks because um, we were doing this nights, weekends, lunches, whenever we could squeeze it in. Um, and so when you're starting a small business and you don't have like, crap, we can't pay ourselves this month. Uh, you don't have that situation, at least for the you know first two years. That, that made it a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, a, lot, a lot less stressful, a lot more fun, I'll, I'll say. 
Yeah. Well, I imagine too, like having that conversation, it's sort of, it gives you permission, you know, mentally and emotionally to work those long hours. It's not like all mm-hmm. you're stressing constantly about like, Oh, I'm never home. I need to, you know, pull yep. my weight at the house. Like you're like, look, this is the way it's going to be for a little bit. And then yep. it's, you've taken that off your plate and that's huge. Yep. Yeah. And it, but we did have to, you know, put a time horizon around it and, um, get back to some semblance of normalcy, which might argue that we're not there yet. But yeah, I was going to say, has that happened? <laughs> Does <laughs> no. it ever happen? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what did my wife say the other night? There's stuff that happens here before 7 p.m. or something like that. Right. So, no, yeah, we're busy, but, you know, it's it's a passion industry. Um, and, a, and we're passionate about our business. We have a lot of fun at it. And, you know, it's a balance. And, uh, and we're finding that. Finding that just takes time. Cool. So how did this role settle out? Like, what does Dan do? What does Mike do? What do you do now? <laughs> you know, there's some definitely some of the short straw stuff uh, like uh, HR. Nobody really wanted to do that. So like I run the payroll and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of it was um, what we're good at. And yes, we're all mechanical engineers and, um, you know, we we think like engineers, but Mike, uh Mike has a really uh, good knack for design and aesthetics. He also has the most experience with machining, coatings, tolerances, all that stuff. So he did almost all the product design for the first, I don't know, three or four years. Um, versus my background's more process related. So basically, at this point, um, I run all of the operations, um, shipping, assembly, um, all that. And then um, Dan has a uh, more of a background. Uh, he's not not uh, formally trained in, but marketing and um, website design. He basically taught himself website design. All that, all the website. In fact, we just launched a new one today. Um, all that's him. So um, just kind of what one what we enjoyed, and two what we we're good at, and then three it was whatever whatever's left over. You know, I do accounts receivable mike does accounts payable we just kind of had to split up the rest of the the stuff i'll call it the the small business stuff that isn't so glamorous yeah well fortunately that's the kind of stuff that at some point you can outsource as well i mean i finally outsourced my payroll from my company of one bike rumor you know and to adp just because it was something i didn't want to deal with and it was way more cost effective so yep yep um yeah, and we even went so far as like last year we uh, started with a, a firm that provides HR, um, HR support, all that kind of stuff, um, even just beyond a payroll service because we needed benefits and we wanted to add a four hundred one k and all this, all this stuff. So we How have many had to start are at the company now. Uh, we have a little over thirty on payroll and about twenty full time, and then we have a probably another dozen contractors we use. So uh, on any given day, there will be 20 to 25 people here also, somewhere in that range. Um, It's a decent sized company. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're growing. We probably added five to seven people last year and probably do more of the same this year. Um, So at this point we are looking to hire on, like we need some help with marketing. Um, We need some help with, well, marketing is such a broad category now with digital marketing and creative and copywriting and all this. Uh, we need some help in that area because that's that's probably where we are least effective and least trained. Cool. So one of the topics I'm really interested in hearing about is how you guys handle outside ideas because you license some designs from our mutual friend, Mark, 
aka Linda Ray, aka my first podcast guest on the Build Cycle. <laughs> yeah, but I think yeah. you know writers like to tell you guys their ideas too, right? Yeah, it's it's that really it's a really tricky thing. You know, with Mark, we have a really great relationship. We trust each other um, on the phone or email or text every day with Mark. Usually every night, actually, when we're fiddling around with bike parts and, and testing different stuff. Um, but you know, when we do get people coming to us and I'm sure this is, this is the same with, uh, many other companies, like it's a, it's a precarious situation, Tyler, because, um, some people come to us and say, I don't want any money for my idea. I just want you to make one. And then if they saw it take off, I'm pretty sure they would feel differently. Um, the other thing is we don't obviously publicly share our product roadmap and all our ideas. So if they come to you with this idea and you say, yeah, I already thought of that. And they say, no, you didn't, you know, like there's, it's a, he said, she said kind of thing. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's a really difficult conversation. Now where the conversation gets a lot easier is if there's actual documented IP involved. I have this patent. I want to license you this patent. Here's what this patent does. Here's how you can use it. We can make a business case for the products behind it, et cetera. Right. That's cut and dry, but most people that just have an idea haven't invested uh, you know anywhere from call it five to twenty thousand dollars to get a patent and so that's where you know we you and I had talked uh, a few maybe a month ago about this kind of thing and it, it's really it's really a difficult thing unless you have this kind of trusted relationship or built this trusted relationship is that's kind of how it happened with Linda Ray. just started with one worked worked well together um, we speak the same language, all that stuff. Um, and trust is not a good thing to bank business deals on unless you really know somebody. Right. So, so how do you deal with customer submissions now? Or, I mean, do you get them? Do people send we, you ideas? We do. Um, a lot of them are uh, the the kind of product, I would say 98% of them are the kind of product. Yeah, we could sell 10 of those. Yeah, I, I think... And you, the person submitting the idea would be one of those 10, so nine extras. <laughs> um, but that's usually what it is. Um, if, it's, if it's really a profound idea, um, we generally don't engage that person. Um, and there have been very few that, you know, it's one thing just to have this idea. What if you had this thing that did this other thing that does more than the things on the market? And we have ideas like that, but actually putting that in pen to paper and actually coming with a, a CAD design and stuff, I can't ever recall anybody coming to us with a CAD design and say, hey, I have this designed, I've prototyped it, I've, you know, they, they, uh, that's just never come up. So how we would deal with that is, is some sort of, we'd need some sort of signed agreement to understand. Um, and that would be before we would even look at the CAD. So some sort of signed agreement saying, hey, we have our current roadmap. If what you show us is already on there, we will show that to you, et cetera. You know, you got you to be very transparent because you don't want to you don't want to sour anybody. Um, the interweb is super powerful now. So if somebody oh, yeah. was sour on you, they could potentially badmouth you. Um, it's just a lot of there's almost more uh, pitfalls than it's even worth um, engaging even with a patent, it's difficult. We recently were working through a deal with somebody uh, that I can't talk about who it was or what it was, but it didn't work out, and they had IP, 
a good IP actually just didn't work out for our company, but um, they're difficult conversations to have. They really are. So if somebody does want to present an idea to you, what's your preferred manner of communication? Like how do they start that conversation? And then, you know, like you said, have some CAD drawings or, or even like actual IP, like what's, what should they bring to the table? Well, in the, in the case of the, the IP, um, he emailed us and then followed with a phone call. And then we went through, um, several calls with both all three of us, Dan, Mike, and I, um, reviewing, um, basically a, a cursory business plan, Tyler, um, on something like that. Cause IP again is very straightforward. It's like, here's this IP, here's what you can do with it. How many do we think we can sell? Here's what we need the investment to do it, all that kind of stuff. Um, if it was more of just, Hey, I have this idea. It'd be like, Hey, you know, we aren't, um, Without license, without IP, it gets very difficult. We usually try and push people away, not because we don't think their ideas are good or don't want to hear. It's just we don't want to get in the, the situation, the pitfalls that I mentioned. Somebody's upset. Somebody feels like they got a raw deal. Somebody feels like you stole their idea when maybe you already had that idea. Those kind of things. Yeah. So I don't. I'm not aware of any really open forum. I mean, I don't. It's a big company. I'm pretty sure you couldn't call Shimano and be like, Hey, I have this idea. <laughs> right. uh, we're small, we're small and unique. And I get that. And we're a lot, you know, willing to, to look at things. But, uh, I mean, I think that's why you see, um, if you ever watched the show shark tank, you and I were just talking about that. But one of the first things I usually ask is like, do you have IP? <laughs> right. Cause, cause that's the only thing really potentially protect, protecting you from, Yep, I already had that idea. Or this other guy makes the product. So yeah, because if you don't, and you're on Shark Tank, then by the time that episode's over, somebody in China is already working on knocking it off. Yeah, if it's a good yeah, idea. totally. And they they might be anyway, but at least you could stop them from selling it wherever you have the patent. Right. So as far uh, as um, not to beat the point to death, but like, say somebody wants to go through with this, they think they've got that idea. They they you know, in their head, there's a business case for it. What does that introductory email look like? And I'll, I'll give you an example because I've already given this idea to Mark because I just want somebody to make this, you know, like dropper post remotes. There's all manner of button and thumb lever and stuff. And you guys have some options. I really want a super slim twist shifter, you know, like repurpose a grip shifter, but make the, the width of that on my bar, you know, like an inch or less. So like I've got that idea. I've tried sketching it out. I couldn't quite figure it out. But like if I were gonna pitch that to you, what would would I just I'm thinking, okay, well maybe I'll email you and say, like, hey, I have an idea for an alternative way to activate a dropper post. Are you interested? Is that would that be a good enough start? Uh my response to that would be I can either confirm nor deny that we have a product coming. Okay. I mean, honestly, that product's been on our roadmap for a while so cool well i'm glad you know that that and that's the kind of you know that's the kind of thing where it's something we've been thinking about it's it's in fact the other thing is if you look online i think some people have hacked grip shifts probably and they're kind of bulky. i get it i get it they're bulky and they don't they don't necessarily work exactly how you'd want them to but well and you have to use you have to cut your grip short. Like there's, yeah, there's a lot of downsides to it. So that's what yep, I'm trying totally, to figure out work around. But. Totally get it. And so like, there's, that's where we get to this difference between here's some CAD, here's how to do this product. I have IP on it. I have IP on a grip shift remote, which I don't think you could even get because grip shifts existed and remotes did and people have already been doing it. But 
here's this thing, here's I have IP, here's the design and, and do you want to buy this from me, Tyler? If you had done that, that's a different conversation. But you, but a lot of times it's, yeah, I came, they come with an idea, but they don't know how to do it or they don't have the design. And so, um, and then you have to look at, even, even if you did take the design, like say, say we wanted to pursue, pursue something with you, is it patentable? Is it protecting? Can you protect it in any way? So, hmm. yeah, it's um, a lot to think about. All right. Well, when yeah, you make it, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll send you a bill for my royalty check. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right, right. Um, let's, conversation about that soon. Hopefully. Yeah. So let's talk about the ideas that you guys develop in house. Where do you get your ideas from? Oh, honestly, the very most basic is writing. How writing, do you, writing, writing. I mean, yeah, I imagine you're doing like what every one of us is doing is you're sitting around. Something doesn't work quite right. You're like, ah, how could I make that better? Except you guys have the the capability to actually do something about it, which is super cool. But yep. all right. So let me ask it a different way then. Because you probably have a million ideas. How do you decide which ones to pursue? Well, there's in the in the very first phase of it, there's kind of three main things that we have to look at. Um, first of all, is is it a wolf tooth product? Right? I might have some great ideas for, I don't know, uh, a car rack. Does Wolftooth make car racks? Does it really fit our brand? Eh, maybe not right now. Maybe not ever, but definitely not right now. So that's probably a no-go. Then, but you get another idea that maybe does pass that. Yeah, it fits. You know, it fits what we do. It fits the enhancing the cycling experience. It's kind of an accessory. It's an aftermarket add-on. Okay. And then you'd look at some concepting. Um, brief CAD. You know, uh, hours of CAD, not weeks. Um, and maybe some printing of parts to see. Well looks like this will fit or it looks like this will mount or it looks like this has some promise. And then once you have that, then you go into a uh, kind of a business case. What can we make it for? Where are we going to make it? You know, given our current supply chain, we have to bring on more supply chain. How much is it going to cost? What can we sell it for based on what other competitive products are out there? Um, I could make the coolest darn multi-tool in the world, maybe that would cost $200, but nobody's going to buy that, right? Um, so then you got to go back to the concept and say, well, what can we do to make said multi-tool for and price it at $40 or $30, whatever the, you know, whatever the market will bear. So those kind of three things need to be done before we go jump in. I'll say, you know, early in the company, we were less diligent about that. It was kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall and, and seeing what stuck. But now we're really more focused on is the product something we should do? Is it something we can do and can we actually sell it and, I mean, make a little money? Yeah. And are you looking at, as far as like the value case to where it's worth it or not, are you looking at um, what the total profit could be off of the product's life cycle or no. how many no. units will you sell? Like what's no. the, what's that determining factor? Um, it is, it's definitely not product life cycle or units sold. Um, the reason is because most of the products we're developing, oh, like our BRAD system, for example, the thing that stores a bunch of stuff that nobody had that before. So like, you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. You, you couldn't, you could guess on unit sales, but it would be just a total guess, right? And so a lot of the stuff that we're inventing, we don't know. Um, that said, unlike a lot of 
larger companies, we can take those risks. You know, we've had we've had a few flop products where we made the first batch and we never made them again. <laughs> um, we've had some great hits that we made them and they sold out in 12 hours and we we're like, huh, we better make some more. Um, so it's it's really one of those things where we're looked at we're looking at like a gross margin structure all the way down to net, if you will. But usually we start at the gross margin structure and and build that around uh, our current supply chain, our outward supply chain. So. Um, can we sell it to distribution? Can we sell it direct to dealers? Can we sell it all of the above? Uh, is it a direct to consumer only product? Those kind of things. And most products we're going to pursue have to at least be sold direct to dealer and consumer. Um, almost our, our preference is always to be able to sell to all our channels, distribution, direct to dealer and direct to consumer. So, Are there a lot of shops stocking your products? It seems like I mean, my general hunch is shops are stocking less and less. They are starting to, with us, because of uh, kind of how we've evolved the company, they're, they're less likely to stock a chain ring because Tyler Benedict walks into the bike shop and he's got a race face boost 32 elliptical on his bike and that's what he wants to be replaced. And like, what are the odds they're going to have that of the, I don't even know how many chain ring SKUs we have, the 400 chain ring SKUs we have. What are the odds they're going to have that one in stock? Where we're seeing success is these um, products like uh, our fat pod grips or the V-Red system that can go on, you know, anybody's bike or even the remotes. A lot of people, a lot of dealers, uh, especially in mountain areas, mountain bike areas are stocking the remote because they can sell that off the shelf. But dealers are very apprehensive about stocking things that one, they're afraid they won't move. And two, um, they're going to get undercut um, by online pricing. And so that's actually something we take very seriously, the map pricing, and we, we monitor it daily and weekly. Um, and it's kind of a whack-a-mole, but it's the only way, um, making sure that nobody's going to walk in and open up their phone and be like, hey, we honor this Amazon price. Because that's the, the instant that happens, the dealer will stop stocking your parts. Um, yeah, I bet. And, and just, I, I want to make sure I understand it right, but uh, MAP, minimum advertised price, oh, yeah. that yep. uh, a, brand, a, a retailer, reseller, online or wherever can't advertise the fact that it's a lower price than what you set as the MAP price. So say the MAP is twenty nine ninety nine. Somebody can't be on Amazon promote, visibly selling it for 25 bucks. Like they would have to do That's a correct. coupon code or some kind of like after you put it in the cart discount or something, right? That's correct. And that only works in the U.S. too, by the way. That's another note. Like the, the, we're teaching people all these different things about running small businesses, but this is this is a, actually a critical thing. It's pricing. Uh, in, in Europe, map pricing or controlling pricing is illegal. Um, you can't have those conversations. You can't do it. So um, it's really only a U.S. thing, but even just doing that in the U.S. Um, is really critical um, for the, the stability of, of the, the pricing and the stability of your supply chain. Gotcha. I want to go back to the product design, like the ideas for a product and how you pursue one, because you guys make some stuff, uh, basically like a modification kit for a rear derailleur and for the non-cyclist. So when wide range cassettes, meaning you have a, a bigger gear range on a cassette came out, they, they were ways and you guys made the parts for that too, to make them even wider range. But in order for that to work, the derailleur had to a shift, essentially shift its position in space to be able to handle the bigger gears so that everything wouldn't get jammed up. But now that pretty much every stock mountain bike drivetrain group has a wide range 
cassette with a derailleur purpose built for that, I imagine those types of parts are kind of like the sales are drastically slowing down, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. And that's, you know, you have to look at, there are products that are evergreen. Um, grips, for example, Tyler aren't, you know, silicon grips are fat posit, which are the fat squishy grips. Those are kind of an evergreen product. There's not a lot of new things to develop there. But when you talk about anytime you're building a product that relies on somebody else's design, you know there's a, a an end to that. Because if it's popular enough, like the wide range cassettes were, of course, the big guys, Shimano and SRAM, are going to take care of that. And they largely have, to your point. What you have to do as a small business, though, is say, okay, we got the we got the gravy train rolling now, and we think it'll last for another year. What do we use that money for? Don't go buy a Ferrari. You go try and figure out what can we use that for to develop new products and keep that going and focus the new products as much as you can on being standalone. Again, back to the, you know, the BRAD system or the remotes or some of these things. They don't rely on one specific company doing one specific thing. Um, they kind of have, have their place in the market. And, um, and so you got to, you know, I think um, there's just one of those things where we we saw it coming. We weren't surprised by it. We weren't offended by it. We aren't. We still aren't. It's we'll, we still sell some of that stuff because the the road groups haven't caught up quite as much. But we're definitely not spending R and D dollars on that area at this point. Yeah. So what you, is you, the what's the life cycle like? If you came up with an idea and it was a great idea and that you'd probably sell enough of them to justify it, but you knew that in twelve months it was going to be already becoming obsolete. Would you pursue it or do you need like a two or three or four year lifespan to justify the effort? Probably not 12 months, Tyler, probably two or three years. What is um, the, what's your development timeline? Like when you come up with, I don't know, I, I'm sure it varies for every different product, but what is from the time you say, you know, I think this is a good idea to the time you're machining that first one on a production scale. Like how long does that take? We've done as short as like four weeks. Oh, wow. It, and it, it What's really would that, that's that's abnormal. I mean, that's why, you know, we're actually at this point holding back products that we have ready to launch because we can't launch them so quickly, whether it be marketing that we need or copywriting or, or straight up just like the market will only publish the, the media will only publish it so often. So um, we have to look at all of that when we're when we're planning in, like, here's what we're going to do. Um, I. I would say back to the the question, if if you had two or three years of runway, I think you would do it because you don't know beyond really a year. The cycling industry is moving so fast right now. Um, things are changing so quickly. Um, you know, we have a roadmap that goes out a couple of years, but gosh, that's that changes every six months. So, yeah, but uh, it's interesting you mentioned the media thing because you know at Bike Rumor we'll publish anything you guys send us. It doesn't matter if it's every other day, but yeah. do you get uh, do some media outlets have fatigue? Like if you just kept sending uh, them too much stuff, would they just I stop? I don't, think, I don't think so. But I think the the public has an appetite for it, to absorb it, to care about it. Um, you also don't want to, you, you don't want to just do a, a, if we do a new colored chain ring, that's not press release worthy. You know, you got to pick and choose when, when is, when's a good story. Um, in fact, when we send, we send, um, emailings and I don't, you probably get them and maybe they go to your spam, but we send them, we try and send them when we have something to talk about, which ends up being about once a month. Maybe I think we did two or three during the holiday season, but 
Uh, that's one thing we've really focused on is not overdoing the, hey, we're still here. Hey, hey, you want to buy some of our stuff? It's We try and send informational emails. Hey, there's a new product and it does this. And maybe it's not your product. But that's fine. Um, rather than just spamming everyone to death with uh, an email every three days, you know. So it's a, it's a conscious decision to not overdo it um, and to space it out. There's also the back end of stuff, though, like writing those press releases takes a lot of time. Um, you know, sometimes we have videos or and photography and all that stuff takes a lot of time. Just getting the, the operations up and running and parts in stock, you know. So when we launch day one, we can ship that kind uh, of thing. Packaging, I imagine, too, right? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah packaging is a lot of things few... people don't think about. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the new we did we launched with the BRAD system, all this new packaging and all the photos and they developed this system for colors to explain what's a base and what's a mount and what's an accessory and all this stuff. Like that's that's a lot of work. I mean, weeks of work just to, just for one package. Um, yeah, retail packaging is, and that's part of what's got. But that's part of what's got Wolf Tooth on store shelves. Like they aren't going to display something for the most part if it's in an ugly plastic bag. They just they just don't. I don't blame them. It doesn't look that nice. So. Yeah. So yeah, there's a ton of stuff. So we might have products ready. In fact, we have a several ready now that the packaging's not done or the photos haven't been taken or we don't have a video ready to show how to use it or what what have you. Um, and so that's that comes into the product development cycle. Like what can what can our company at given its size now and and our marketing and um, our our uh, contractors and whoever else we can pull on, what can we support from a launch perspective and then how does that align with trade shows and where we're going to be and all that seasonality it's a lot to think about oh so much and, you know, there's, and a lot of moving pieces too it's like it's enough to yeah you know, drive somebody crazy with spreadsheets <laughs> yeah we have a few of those <laughs> um you know there was one question i forgot to ask you about if somebody's submitting ideas for you it's a quick one is so like if I had that idea and I wanted to present it to you or somebody else, does mailing a copy of my idea to myself and keeping the envelope sealed because then it has that postmark stamp, like does that Not count? anymore. Doesn't work? Not anymore. It used okay. to, you know, the the US switched from um switched to what's called first to file. Uh, it was eight or ten years ago. I'd have to look it up. But and that that really means like, Tyler, if you had that idea. And we had that idea at the same time. Whoever filed it with the patent office, if they were filing for a patent, whoever filed first gets the idea. And there's been numerous lawsuits on this, you know, cycling industry and otherwise, um, when two people have similar ideas. Hmm. Well, that's at the same time. That's actually a perfect segue into talking about competition, um, because I'll just I'll jump ahead a little bit because there was with the chain rings in particular, there was some a big brand threatening litigation to a lot of small brands for what they was claimed to be a patent design infringement. Um, do you want to talk about just general competition or do you want to jump straight to that? Like, how'd you guys deal with that? Cause you were affected in some way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where anytime litigation comes up, it's, uh, it's expensive for one. Um, and for two, it's just, uh, something that'll give you a lot of gray hair. Um, 
it wasn't wasn't the most fun experience. It is it's past now, but it's something that you have to consider when you're coming up with a product or when you're going to market with a product is that you need to do an IP search. I should have mentioned that's part of the, you know, the con if you have a concept, then you also have to look at IP as part of that business case thing. Um, because there's a lot of IP out there, especially on in bikes and mechanical systems. I mean, a bike is about as mechanical a system as you can get. And there's just a ton of IP out there. And you gotta you need to make sure that you understand what's there and either license that technology if 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 it's uh, out there or try and license it or avoid it and um and have some comfort level that you aren't infringing so it's uh it's another aspect to new product design that you know um you have to know what's out there and there's there's very varying strengths of ip some ip is really cryptic um you almost need to i mean you basically have to pay a lawyer to tell you what what they're trying to say um so and that's a that's a huge added expense actually to the to the product development cycle is IP and understanding the the playing field because it's it's not good for anybody it's not good for the people that feel like they're getting their IP violated it's not good for you to get in litigation uh, I don't think there's there's hate or or a personal distaste for any of that it's just people protecting their own property so um, so it's a it's a big part of product development that you have to think about now when you so you said a mechanical system when describing a bike, which to me I am interpreting as, okay, if you guys are doing an IP search, you can't just look at bicycle patents. You have to look at any kind of patent that is anything Techno, to do yeah. with, you know, say gearing or whatever it is that, that category. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it might say, um, uh, chain driven or, um, or other chain driven car or other, transportation device i don't know what the words would be something like that or when it's talking about like uh telescoping there's all kinds of patents around telescoping like tubes and you know you might think you have this great idea for say a fork or a dropper post or something that telescopes you really need to look into like different things that would be telescoping that might not be a dropper post you can't just search go on the the um, patent search site and just say dropper posts and assume that everything's going to pop up do you pretty so you much to, need a patent attorney to do that kind of stuff for you? It, it seems overwhelming. Um, Mike is really good at it. Um, our founder, president, Mike, uh, the co-owner, he's he's phenomenal at it, actually. Um, he has, I don't know what he has, 20 or 25 patents now. But So he does a lot of the cursory for us, but we do definitely, if we're serious about something and and either concerned or just curious on some some specific patents, we will employ our patent attorney to say, hey, here's what it's actually saying, here's your exposure, here's what it doesn't say, so here's where you, you could be open to some options, that kind of thing. Um, but back to, you know, just throwing an idea over, this is the this is the expensive part of getting that idea to, to market is all these other things, packaging, IP, all you know, it, the list goes on. We've talked about a lot of it. Yeah. So when you say, you know, a patent could cost five to 20 grand, I've actually heard it costs a lot more than that, but like those, that's, those just, research get it. that's costs, just getting it. And it depends how many times it, or if they kick it back, how complex it is. And then there's the defending it, Tyler. That's the really expensive part. I yeah. mean, lit litigation gets into the six figures almost instantly. And then, then you can blow it up, you know, well beyond that really quickly. So yeah, it's uh it's really tough for a small business to absorb. 
Yeah. And I've heard, I think maybe I've heard it more with trademarks, but I've possibly with patents is that if you let somebody slide once, it really weakens your position to defend it in the future. So you almost have yep. to be pretty aggressive in defending your patents every time, no matter what. Yes. Yes. If you know about something and you don't go after them, then the, they, whoever you go after the second time could potentially like talk, say, Hey, you can go after these other guys and, and that. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a very precarious thing. The, the one thing I will say about trademarks is though, they're a little bit more cut and dry. Um, we have a trademark for drop, stop chain rings. We have a trademark for whatever. And if we find somebody else on their site calling their chain ring drop, stop, um, it's usually pretty cut and dry. Most people are like, yep, I get it. It's more of the utility patents that where you get into heavy litigation stuff. Cause the trademark is, it's pretty exacting. It's not very ambiguous. Right. All right. Let's, uh, I'm going to backtrack to what I originally had as my beginning competition question. So when you guys first started, there were very few brands making an aftermarket one by chain ring. And now everybody has them. Usually they're coming as OE options. Well, pretty much all mountain bikes are now. So how do you differentiate and convince riders that either yours are better than what else is out there or that yours are worth upgrading to? Um, you know, we, <laughs> we do have our patented drop stop, uh, tooth profile. Um, <clears throat> I'll say that I think the, the forums and all the feedback online pretty much speaks for itself. We haven't done a lot of, um, we talk about, um, what the merits are of ours. Um, we never ever try to go and say ours is better than theirs because we just want to you know, it's the whole thing. You don't want to blow somebody else's flame out. Just try and make yours burn brighter. Um, that's that's really been our focus. And with the chain rings, the, they've been reliable for people. They hold the chain best in class. Um, you know, a lot of the precision when you get them, you see them and you touch them, you realize the precision that's put into them. Um, and so that's kind of where we've got a, a hold of the a market is the people that maybe the people that want the best. Um, it's not always, I mean, you kind of get what you pay for as you know, with bike parts, um, not to say there's not ever good low cost options, but you know, our chain rings are, are renowned as, as the best or some of the best out there. All right. Yeah. I like that. Uh, you don't want to blow someone else's flame out. Just make your burn brighter. That's, that's a good one. Um, so what about knockoffs? So do you guys have people knocking you off and how do you do it? Yeah. That? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's another whack-a-mole <laughs> thing, much like map. Um, uh, every, every good idea, you know, gets copied. Heck when I was, <laughs> I don't know if you've been to China lately, but you can, they have like knockoff Ford F-150s. Um, oh my gosh. and you know, if you can knock that off and I, this is back when I was traveling to Seagate, but, or for Seagate to China a lot, but I always got a chuckle out of that. You'd see like this thing that looks like a Ford F-150, but it's not a Ford. Uh, so, um, there is only so much you can do, Tyler. Um, trademarks are really powerful. I'll say that. And so is search. So if you have a name of a product and people know that name and go to that name because they want that thing, they're more likely to find your product if you have a trademark. And trademarks are things like if you go to Amazon with a trademark and say, hey, Amazon, or hey, eBay, we have this trademark. This person's calling their listing our thing. They'll pull it down right away. If you go to Amazon or eBay and say, hey, we have this patent and 
these guys are violating our patent. <laughs> They're like, hey, we aren't getting involved in that. Yeah. We aren't touching that. So, so that's one way you can do it. Uh, honestly, you just got to keep innovating. Right. You just yeah, got to keep innovating because you can't. I mean, it's another it's most of the copies. It's rare that we've been copied, um, you know, uh, I'll call it in the U.S. or Canada or even Europe. Um, it's been more of uh, like AliExpress. We'll find a lot of stuff on there or people listing from overseas on eBay. And it's it's unfortunate. It's it's for sure frustrating. It's a bit flattering, uh, but but mostly just frustrating. Um, I don't know. I mean, you just, you're kind of, you're somewhat powerless. Yeah. Are they just knocking off the designs or are they knocking, like, are they putting your logo on their knockoffs? They're not using our logo. I don't, we're not, we're not Oakley. We're not big enough or powerful <laughs> enough or cool enough maybe to, to have that happen yet, but definitely the designs. Yeah. We've handfuls of them that are copied now. And, you know, at first, first time we saw one, we did, we tried to reach out to them and shut them down and then they just multiply. And, and yeah, it's, right. I mean, it's big companies can't even get this really under control. You know, you can still buy knockoff Oakley's probably overseas. I haven't been there in a while, but you know, oh, that, yeah, they're, a big, they're a big, they're, yeah. And they're a big, powerful company with, uh, you know, great product and, and lots of great engineers and, and maybe the knockoff isn't quite as good, but people buy it because yeah, it's, it's cheap. Um, and they can't figure it out. So, like, they can't stop it. There's no way in heck we can. Yeah. Well, I like that you just say, you know, just keep innovating because it's everything's got a life cycle. And, you know, they people, it's amazing how fast knockoffs come out these days. But I think the smart consumers know. And, you know, there's some people that just don't care. They just they just want the cheapest thing. I mean, there's one guy locally that rides a, a knockoff Pinarello. And it was like the disc brake version right when they first came out with it, I was like, how did you get that so fast? He's like, oh, dude, it's not real. Was, and then I'm just thinking like, man, I am not riding next to you or behind you oh, or uh -huh. directly in front yeah. of you because I don't want you to break your bike and destroy me as well. Yeah, but, and it's not, Tyler, it's not my position or your position to tell somebody how to buy and what to buy. What you can do yeah. is present the merits of your product, stand by your product, do the customer service. We put a huge emphasis on that. Back up your product, do all those things. And if that's not enough and the customer still wants to buy a knockoff, I mean, that, that's their prerogative. It's a, it's a free market. It's open market. They can do that. That's, we're not we're going to dislike them or be mad at them or anything. It's just they're going to have to deal with potentially some repercussions when their Pinarello might break. Yeah. Well, uh, the way I look at it, too, is, I mean, I used to do that. I used to buy, not bike knockoff parts, but just in general, like I would try and find the lowest cost option for a lot of stuff. And, man, it's I can't tell you. How many times I've ended up having to spend more in the long run to either buy multiple versions of it or just the time and energy wasted in researching it and then having to return it or reorder it. And it's sometimes it's just it's all that extra trouble that people don't consider the cost of. And even like as entrepreneurs, like I'm sitting here thinking like, I, you know, just the equipment that I buy now. I don't bother trying to skimp so much on it. I get exactly what I need, even though sometimes it's way more expensive because Ultimately, I'm going to be so much more productive and efficient with the right equipment that's going to last for years and years and years versus something that maybe won't or maybe there's no way of getting tech support on it. I totally agree. I mean, time's worth a lot. Time's the most, and at least for me, the most valuable thing in the world <laughs> Yeah. You know, with, kid, with kids and all that. And so, yeah. But again, everybody has to make their own decision and and we don't ever fault people, um, you know, and we just we just try and do it 
the stand up way and, and stand by our products and help people when they need help. Cool. So other than all of that, uh, my next question that I'd like to ask everybody towards the end of the interview is what challenges are keeping you up at night? What challenges are keeping me up at night? Um, honestly, it's the things that I like being woken up by is that new ideas. Sometimes things will stir in, stir in your head for weeks. And then all of a sudden you wake up in the middle of the night, like, ah, I think this is how do we, how we can do it. Um, this, the only stuff that really keeps me up at night is HR issues. We don't have a lot of them, but if they ever do pop up, you know, and it might not even be a bad HR issue, maybe a cut, maybe a, one of your workers is struggling with a family illness or some, you know, something. And, and that really, we, we really value our employees. We're, we're a small company, we're a family here. And that's the stuff that for me, at least that's the HR stuff. It's the, because it's people like parts and, and, and bank accounts and, and revenue and profit. That's all just dollars and numbers. And it, yeah, that stuff matters, but like it's just numbers and, and hard things in the end. It's not people. And so that's honestly, um, honestly, what keeps me up is just making sure our employees are happy, making sure they're engaged, making sure they're doing well at a personal level, that those kind of things. Um, Cause I mean, at a, at a core, at its core, our, every company is really the people it's built around, right? Right. All right. I want to lead into my last question because it's always, what advice would you give to somebody wanting to do something similar? But I've got to ask, as far as how you guys got started, did you have to go out and buy all the machinery, like the machining machines and learn how to use them? Or did you just contract that out at first and slowly add machines? Like, How did you get to the point where you're producing stuff in-house? It's the second one you said. So we contracted 100% the first two years, contracted out, locally contracted out with friends and other people we knew running machine shops, brought it in-house um, about six to 12 months after we left Seagate, had to hire somebody um, to do it. And so um, if, if somebody has an idea and start is starting a new company, um, you pretty much, I mean, unless unless you want to take big, big risks, which it would have been at that time, because we didn't have a facility, you know, we were working out of our houses, all that stuff. You have to find a valued a partner that values you, um, a partner that's gonna that's gonna work with you as a small business because they're not gonna make much money on you at the start either, you know, even if even if uh, it's it's somebody that sees sees value in the thing you're trying to do and and partner with them to help with the manufacturer. Um, how did you find the original contractors? Did you just like look it up locally or did you go on like, uh, what is it, connections register or something? No, it's connections we had, you know, cause it's what we, we're designing robots. And so robots are made of a bunch of machine parts and then some, some, uh, off the shelf components, actuators and the like. So we had, we had connections, <clears throat> we had connections from the start. So we're, we're fortunate again, that was our background and that's our strength is we, we know how to do that stuff. Um, and so that, that's the other thing is you have to think about if you're going to start something, do you really want to go it alone or do you want to bring somebody else in? And if you bring somebody else in, don't just bring your best buddy in because you like them. Bring in somebody that can help you and fills the things that you don't do well. Maybe you're, maybe you're the best sales and marketing and social media guy in the world. You better find somebody that's really good at product design and operations to partner with because you're going to want to work on this stuff and this other stuff is actually what's going to drive um, – you know, long-term stability. So the, the one other thing to consider if you're starting a small business is that it, 
a lot of people have this one great idea, right? This, this, this killer idea that it's going to destroy the marketplace and disrupt, and you're going to make all this money. And that's great. And that might be true, but you really have to have uh, a path forward or foresight to what does the brand become? What's the next product? Can you leverage the IP out of the product, this killer product into something else? Um, because you can't build a brand and on one idea for the most part. I mean, for the most part, you need some sort of product breadth. And, uh, and without that, you're just going to end up, you know, that product will have a life cycle, just like you mentioned earlier in the podcast. And that could end or will end. So right on. Well, Brendan, man, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on Tyler. So I really love this episode, and if you've been a regular listener of the Build Cycle podcast, I apologize for the little hiatus between the last episode and this one. It's not because I didn't have great content, it's just been the travel with Bike Rumor has been out of control, awesome, but out of control, and this episode has actually been recorded for quite a few months. I just hadn't had time to edit it down at the intro and outro, but I do have a couple more in the tank that will be coming soon, so stay subscribed if you've got an entrepreneur friend that likes this kind of stuff, likes learning the startup stories for outdoor adventure lifestyle brands and some tactical tips from subject matter experts, please share it with them and tell them to search The Build Cycle on whatever podcast player they use. It's much appreciated. That's how we grow this and how I can keep doing this more and more and finding more and better guests for you. So as far as this episode goes, you know, the part about accepting customer submissions, I think is key if you're trying to protect your IP and protect your company from weird claims about people who say you may have stolen their idea. And I'll leave you guys to digest how that works best for your particular company. But one thing a lot of founders do is start the way Brendan and his partners did is moonlighting for another company and then all of a sudden they're jumping ship and they're going full time with this and they really have to figure out how to balance that work and life because if anybody has done this as an entrepreneur, you know when you're starting out, this is all consuming launching a brand because everything you're focused on is making this new baby grow and, and thrive and become healthy. And it takes a lot out of you personally and emotionally and physically. And to be able to go home and then have to pull 100% of your weight around the house too can be really, really tough. And I think the way Brendan and his wife figured that out where they said, look, this is this is the way it's going to be. And if you're on board with this, that so we can do this is a great conversation to have in advance. And it was super smart of them to do that. And I hadn't even thought about that. I don't think a lot of people do. So make sure you're thinking about how this is going to impact or could impact whatever else it is you have going on with your life and make sure that those people that are involved in your life outside of your new venture understand what you're going to be doing and going through and how your time might be limited one way or another and get some buy-in from them and at least let them know what to expect because I think having those expectations set in advance goes is much easier to deal with than trying to explain it away in the future and deal with frustration because other people just didn't know what was going on. So that's it for this episode. Thanks a ton for listening. Tell your friends and we'll see you next time.